Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This morning we're going to talk about we're going to talk about conflict. So who's on board? All right. Some of you are like, yes, I love conflict. Pablo, if anyone has any issues, just go talk. Pablo would love to fight with you about it. Um, Matthew 18 is one of those classic passages about how to do conflict as a church. And so, sorry for some of our guests. This is a little bit of like a family, like the family affair. Like if we're the family, how do we handle conflict in our family? And that really is the sermon. Um, Matthew 18 if you, want to, if you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to. Matthew 18 is the classic kind of master class from Jesus on how to handle disagreements and conflict in the church. This morning, I want to look at it under three headings, the goal of Christian conflict, the process of Christian conflict, and then finally, the power of Christian conflict. First, I want to share a little parable, which will sort of orient us to the message. And the parable is the story. Uh, Tom, Tom and Kevin, not their real names, they became fast friends at a church Bible study. They both had recently become fathers, so they were bonding over that. And they shared a love for cycling, so they bonded over that. And they also had a particular burden for orphan care ministry. So they decided, being brothers and, and, and wanting to come together and do something on behalf of orphan care ministry, they, they were partnering with a nonprofit. They decided to start a business that was basically restoring old bikes and then selling them for a profit. And the proceeds were going to go to this nonprofit in Venezuela. Kevin was the people person. Tom was the operations person. He did the, the work on the bikes mostly, and then he also did the books. What happened that while Tom was out of town on a family emergency, um, Kevin had a customer inquiry that sent him into the unknown land of QuickBooks. God bless you all who know your way around in there, but Kevin did not. But there he found, a, he found a, what he thought was a discrepancy, $3,000 that seemed to be unaccounted for. Well, he figured it was maybe his lack of financial prowess. He just didn't quite understand what was going on. So he asked his wife, who did know QuickBooks, and she seemed to affirm what Kevin saw, that $3,000 were unaccounted for. Well, when Tom returned, Kevin just sat down with him and, and asked him about it. Tom was then completely dismissive and defensive. He gave some sort of convoluted explanation, like you just don't really know what you're talking about. So Kevin pressed, Tom doubled down. Well, still unsure exactly of what to do at this point, um, wanting to trust his good friend Tom, Kevin decided to loop in their mutual friend for further input. So their mutual friend was Donald, who was a, who was a seasoned bank executive, long history of experience with money and with QuickBooks. And along with his wife, Donald and his wife had done premarital counseling for a lot of the younger couples in the church. They had done it for both Kevin and Tom, so knew them both. So Kevin invited him in and said, can you take a look at this? Because I feel like Tom's lying to me and I'm not quite sure what to do. Well, unfortunately, Donald saw what he had seen plenty of times before in his career, the very obvious signs, irrefutable proof, really, that, that Tom had, been, had developed kind of a sophisticated and subtle way of siphoning off money each month from this little business. There was a total of actually closer to $4,000 missing. It was undeniable. So now, Kevin, his wife, and other mutual friend sat down with Tom and explained what they were seeing. Tom just stormed out of the meeting, defensive and angry, and then he stopped returning texts, he stopped returning calls, but he kept coming to church. He came the next week and the next week and the next week. So eventually, what was to be done? 
Kevin looked at Matthew 18, and he did what he is, you know, his simplest reading of the, the text said. He brought it to the church. In this case, that meant bringing it to the, the pastor, one of the pastors. This was a small Anglican church. And so the pastor said, Tom, um, I need to sit down with you and talk about this. So they did. The conversation went very poorly. Tom got defensive and angry and more upset. He tripled down and he left. He became unresponsive now to the pastor's uh, intervention. But again, he kept coming to church. Well, here's how the conversation ended. The pastor called up Tom and said, Tom, listen, until you're willing to sit down with me again and with Kevin and to work this out together, I'm going to ask that you refrain from receiving communion. Also, I just want to remind you, you're signed up for providing burgers for small group tomorrow night, so see you then. And that was the end of the conversation. Okay, with that little, little story in the background, let's look at the process, the goal, the process, and the power of Christian conflict. First is the goal. Notice what comes in your Bibles right immediately prior to this little teaching. It's a little parable. The lost sheep. And that is intentional. The heart of God is that the shepherd goes after the one lost sheep and celebrates the one sheep who returns home, who's restored, even more than the 99 who never left. What's the point? The heart of God loves restoration and reconciliation. Here is the, the, the goal of all Christian conflict. So there's conflict. Many times we think of that as the goal is to win or be right. The goal of Christian conflict is to be restored, to be reconciled. So that is the very simple goal that guides what is to follow. So here's the beginning of the process in verse 15. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and bring in the fault, the two of you alone. If they listen, you have regained that brother. Well, I want to insert kind of two little, um, they're not explicit in the text, but two things before we get into the actual process that Jesus lays out. The first foundation piece is this. We have to know who this applies to and who it doesn't. So when the NRSV that you have in the pew translates member of the church, the, the word there is brother, which really stands for brother or sister. It just means anyone in the body of Christ. So this isn't for like conflict resolution for out there in the workplace necessarily. This is for those of you here in the body of Christ who participate in his table. The family of God is to operate, the point is this, is to operate in a different way than the family of the world. So when we baptize little Clara this morning, we're bringing her into a family. And in that family, we have a father that we share. We have a family that we share. And this father and this family has a specific way of being sister and being brother to one another. So what is that way? I want you now to think of someone on your heart or on your mind that you are unreconciled with that maybe you've been really hurt by. Could be someone right next to you. Probably is. Um, could be someone across from you, somewhere else in the room. Could be someone somewhere else in the world. Or you could feel like, you know what? I'm good. I am reconciled. Eventually, you'll come across this, so you still need to pay attention. How many of you have had conflict? How many of you have been hurt? <laughs> okay, this is relevant. How is the family of God to proceed through hurt and conflict. Listen, if we are image bearers, and we are, we image the God who is a relational unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly unified. If we are witnesses, we are to witness to a God who has given his life to be reconciled to us. So the vertical lines of the cross, our reconciliation with God, always are to be worked out horizontally with our brothers and sisters. That's the point Jesus is trying to get across. If we are not living this way, we are not living as Christians. And the New Testament really kind of gets harsh on this point. Like, like, if you're not forgiving, you're not being forgiven. If you're not being reconciled, you are not living as a child of the God who reconciles. 
It insists on it over and over and over again. Now, what I want to say, though, quick little parentheses, is that this teaching does not apply to um, the vulnerable and the weak and the oppressed. We can't use this passage to sort of hit those over the head who have, who have been marginalized to say, listen, you need to forgive and be reconciled, so you need to stick in this abusive or manipulative relationship. That's not the point of this text. This is about two healthy adults coming together. Does that make sense? So don't think of the extreme outliers. Think of just the normative way that two healthy adults come together and work through conflict. So that's foundation one. You're part of a family, and you're to be reconciled within the family. The second piece that's really important before we get into the actual process is this. Jesus says, go to your sibling alone, but what are you to do before you go to your sibling alone? Any ideas? Pray. Very good. That's what they said in the first service, too. wasn't in my notes, but you're technically correct. You should probably pray. <laughs> what else? <laughs> Forgive. You know the answer already, but thank you for keeping us moving. <laughs> you should forgive. Really? Before you go to them? Yes. Before, you go, before they've asked for it? Yes. Before they've asked for it. You're to forgive them. Why? Because if not, you are going into the process of conflict, not looking for restoration, but looking for a pound of flesh, looking for blood, looking for vengeance, looking for payback. And then from the start, you're going to have conflict, yes, but you're not going to have Christian conflict. Okay, but how? How do you forgive? <laughs> understand, we must understand, this is hard for all of us, forgiveness is granted before it is felt. It's granted before it is felt. We don't wait to feel it, we decide to give it. So Tim Keller says this involves, his book on forgiveness is, is excellent, I would recommend it. He says this involves three internal postures and one practice. So the three internal postures, deciding to forgive before you feel it involves this, I am not going to beat them up to their face. That's aggression. Second point, I am not going to beat them up to other people. What's that? What is it? Yeah, gossip. I am not, and then third, I am not going to beat them up in my heart. What's that? Bitterness. So it's deciding I am not going to be too aggressive. I am not going to gossip and start spreading little seeds of dissent. And I am not going to be bitter. Instead, I am going to do what? I am going to pray for them. I am going to pray blessing over them. Now, as you make these decisions, your heart begins to soften, your heart begins to turn, but it's a process. This is not a momentary one and done. This is a process you come back to again and again. Now, maybe you've thought of this person who's hurt you, and you need to decide right now whether you're on board with this process or not. <laughs> maybe this could be a chance to hit the reset button for some of us. It has been for me. I, I am going to commit to this process rather than let myself get bitter. So as you do, as you listen to the rest of this teaching, I just want you to pray and decide, like, are you on board with this? C.S. Lewis says forgiveness is hard. You know, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Forgiveness is really hard because it hurts, it costs. It says, I'll bear the cost instead of making them bear it. But what's the other option? To not forgive is the other option, and that costs more. I love this quote. I can't help but share it again. You've probably heard me share it three times already, but here it is. Frederick Buchner says that of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor the last toothsome morsel to, of the pain that you're going to give back. This is a feast fit for a king, the chief drawback is what you were wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's a picture of bitterness. 
You can choose forgive at great cost or bitterness at greater cost because bitterness will keep you in bondage to the person who's hurt you. It's letting their actions continue to define the way you think about yourself. It's time to let go. And maybe that's just the word this morning. Just let go. It's time to forgive. So let's get into the particulars of the threefold process. Jesus says, first, what do you do? You go with who? With no one. You go alone. You begin by handling conflict in the most private, relational way possible. You have a private conversation. You resist the temptation to do what? Gossip, slander, bitterness. You go alone. Now, can I invite you to ask yourself, is this how I tend to handle conflict? Some of us are conflict avoidant, so we don't go at all and then we become withdrawn and cold and mechanical in our relationships. They don't deepen because we're just going to pretend everything's okay and that we're not hurt, and so we never go deeper with people. Others of us, well, the opposite, right? We can't wait. We're going to get in there. We're going to, we're going to like, bull in a china shop, right? And both of those things can be da- really damaging. So what's the invitation? Jesus says go and have a private, respectful, direct, kind conversation with someone who's hurt you and say, here is how you've hurt me. Here's how I think you're sinning. All right, now, what happens? They receive it or they don't. Now, but here's what's probably going to happen. This is what Kevin did, isn't it? So Kevin goes to Tom. What did Tom do? He gets defensive and angry. That's probably what's going to happen at this first step. So just be prepared for that. Um, You know, I certainly see this in myself, especially in my marriage. When Jenny comes to me and says, you hurt me, or you're behaving this way, or I know that I'm behaving that way, I get defensive. Can anyone relate? Why? Because I don't like to feel exposed. It brings up insecurity and, and, and like self-hatred, like disappointment in who I am and how immature I am. And I don't want to look at it. You know, I just want to hide from it, pretend I'm better than that, pretend it's her fault. You know? You did this, you did that. We all, we all have this defensiveness that can, that can spring up. So when you come to a sister or brother and you say, you did this, you did that, prepare for them to need a little minute. They can be a little defensive. Don't overreact. Maybe you just need to give them some space. Maybe it's coming back to the conversation in a few hours or a few days. Well, ideally, reconciliation happens in this step. You find a way of coming together. But if not, as is the case with Tom and Kevin, what happens next? Tom goes and he gets Donald. You get one or two others to come along with you or two to three others to come along with you. Two or three is just the Old Testament number for you can't actually charge someone unless there's been two or three witnesses. So Jesus is weaving that law into into the community, the New Testament community. Now, listen, don't go get your best friends. Don't go get people who already agree with you and who already have a little bit of a grudge against this person that you're trying to talk to. Go and get someone who's older and wiser and has already lived a life that has evidenced the fruit of the Spirit, whose counsel you trust, and who will also tell you if they actually think you're being the one who's the problem. You know, if they actually say, you know what, I realize you've been hurt, but I, I actually think you're being really easily offended, and you're misinterpreting their action. be prepared for them to push back on you. That's all I'm saying. But hopefully that person can help you come together, can be a bridge, that person or those people. But choose them wisely. All right, well, ideally, reconciliation happens there. But if not, what's the third step? Take it to the church. Now, what does that mean? Of course, there's no institutional church at this point. This is just the disciples and the brothers and the sisters. The institutional church structure we have now hasn't fully developed. Um, some churches now to this day literally mean like there's a step in the discipline process where the church is told, so-and-so is in sin. Don't talk to them. Or, or you know, they're, they're cast out. They're excommunicated. And it's public knowledge. Um, 
in the Anglican way, we prefer to try to go through pastors first, unless it involves the pastor or pastors, and then you could go to the senior warden, who right now is Stephanie Giles. If you don't know her, she's uh, on the website. Or to the bishop, right? We try to handle it through pastors first. Um, now, listen, if it gets this far, <laughs> it's going to get hard. It's going to get messy. It's going to probably result in some wounding. Um, the offended far- party will probably feel ganged up on to some degree. It, it could get a little messy. But what's the point? The point is that if someone is so stuck in a lack of repentance and they're so insistent on seeing things in their own light and everyone else is helping them try to see you are hurting yourself, you're hurting your relationships, you're hurting the body, and they just won't see it, this is the best chance we have at bringing them back and restoring them. Again, not to shun them, not to punish them, to restore them like the lost sheep coming home. Now, if they still don't repent, then what? The final recourse, Jesus says, is if they refuse to listen to the church, let them be a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, this sounds really harsh until you remember how Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. He goes after them like a shepherd of lost sheep. He, he loves them. He dines with them, not, but not as insiders. They're not insiders until they place their faith in him and repent of their sins. And then they're welcome to this table, right? But he still, remember, bring the hamburgers? He still, he still dines with them. He still loves them. And the discipline that he's enacting or that the church is enacting is restorative to bring them back in. Okay. So this is why Tom's pastor is forced to say, Tom, until you're willing to talk with me, I can't welcome you to the family feast because you're not behaving like you're a part of the family. You're behaving like an outsider, not like a child of God who bled and died to reconcile us so that we might be reconciled to one another. And so our, our diocesan canons, the way this looks in our own church and our diocese, is that, well, I'll just read the quote. No one shall receive the sacrament of Holy Communion who is in open, willful, unrepentant sin. With pastoral care from the rector, such prohibition shall continue until there is repentance and restoration of the penitent. And our BCP also says to you all that even if I or if Deacon Cindy or if one of our pastors, if Lisa, notices that there's deep enmity between you and another person in the church, we are to advise you not to come to communion. That's ultimately up to you. Our, our invitation is we, we sort of fence the table every week by saying all those baptized followers of Christ are welcome to this table. If not, you can cross your arms. That's a way of saying this is sort of between you and the Lord. Like, where's your heart? We're going to let you decide. But I just want to counsel you. Take reconciliation seriously. And it's okay to come up here and cross your arms and say, this week I think I need a blessing because I need, I need to go out and be reconciled before I receive communion. That's, that's good. It probably means you're taking communion real seriously. The point is not shunning. The point is restoration, you know? Don't forget the hamburgers. We'll see you tomorrow night. I still want to be your friend. I still love you. But as long as you're refusing to repent, you can't come to the family meal. All right, well, finally and very briefly, we've covered the goal of Christian conflict, the process of Christian conflict. How about the power? How does Jesus conclude this little teaching? Verse 20, for, those, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The power to do this does not come from us. It comes from the presence of Jesus in in our midst. You know, it'd be easy to take everything I've said and realize that you are not living in forgiveness and reconciliation and to conclude that I just need to be really guilty about how bad of a Christian I am and work harder at it next time. That is not the message I want you to leave here remembering. The message is this, is that if you've let bitterness take root or gossip take root or you've let a relationship become cold and mechanical because you've avoided or gossiped or withdrawn or you're letting your wounds fester, 
solution is not to try to feel guilty and then do something about it. The solution is to let this conviction awaken in you. The presence of Christ is in your midst, actively forgiving you and loving you and inviting you deeper. The great cost of his love, it cost him everything, his, his very life. And as you actually apprehend that grace, that, that applies to you even now, even in the midst of this sin that you're dealing with. It's still there for you. It won't abandon you. And as you, as you, as you take that in, you're going to give that out. So the point is to get back in touch with the forgiveness, the costliness of the forgiveness that you've received so that you can freely give it to others. So that's probably an invitation for others of you this morning is that, Lord, show me and reveal to me the great costliness of my forgiveness so that I might become a more forgiving person. Sisters and brothers, 2 Corinthians 5.18 sums it all up. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Be reconciled one to another. Lord, we ask for you to hear this as a prayer for each of us, that you would meet each of us in the various places of hurt and wounding and, and the places of conviction that you've brought and that you would gently draw us deeper into your grace so that we can become more gracious, forgiving people. Help us to be humble in our responses to those who might approach us and say, you've hurt me. Help us to love sincerely and deeply, even through conflict. Teach us how to have healthy Christian conflict as you have instructed us to have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.